Hi, my name is Michael Sano. I'm Jewish and I love Israel. So if you love Israel, if you love being Jewish, or if you have an unwavering connection to the land of Israel, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? My name is Michael Sano, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast, the only positive podcast about the people, the food, the culture, and the history of the state of Israel. Hey, um, if this is your first time watching, hit the like button and the subscribe button if you're watching us on YouTube. Um, share this podcast with your friends and your family. Um, it's It means a lot to us. And get us out there. Get us those... Uh, get us some likes. We'd appreciate it. The other thing is if you want to take us with you, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Um, And as always, this episode is brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards, the best way to learn Hebrew and the best way to brush up on your Hebrew. Um, They're available on Amazon for Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, that's okay. You can download the app to your Android phone, your iPhone, iPad, your PC, or your Mac. Um, And the link for that is in the description below. Hey, welcome back. Um... We're doing something a little different. We are continuing the history of Jerusalem. Um, so as you can see on the board behind me, it says Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, um, in both English and Hebrew. Um, now, normally we do the episode where we do the history of a city and the modern city. Well, in the state of Israel, a lot of the history um, takes place in Jerusalem. So we've had to expand that for this last episode a little bit. And it's funny because the entire way through, um, we're talking about Herzliya, Tveria, all these different cities, Beersheba, uh, Haifa, all these different cities, we were easily able to sum up the history in about anywhere from half an hour to even all the way up to like an hour. With Jerusalem, we were not able to do that at all. Um, and I left off, the first episode covered all the way up through the Ottoman period. The second episode, which uh, both of these episodes, you should go back and check. Um, the second episode covered the mandate period, World War One, the mandate period, and the uh, independence war. And now we've had some relative calm for literally only a couple of years, not even like a decade. Um, And we're moving into uh, some more conflict history that directly involves Jerusalem. Um, So let's get into it. All right. um, So Jerusalem or Yerushalayim. Um, sits on a plateau in the Judean mountains between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. Uh, It's one of the oldest cities in the world and is holy to the three major Abrahamic uh, religions, which are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It has been destroyed at least twice. I've said this in all the episodes. It's just, it's fascinating when you hear it. Um, It has been destroyed at least twice, besieged 
23 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, attacked 52 times, and every major power in the ancient world has at one time or another held it under its control. Uh, Despite this fact, Jerusalem is held in historical memory as the fiercely independent and influential seat of the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon, the Hasmoneans or the Maccabees, as they're also known, and Herod the Great. It also sits, as of last episode, as the capital of the newly independent state of Israel. So let's go into how crazy the the new Jewish state has it. So they're born in war. They, you know, Ben Gurion makes the declaration, and then immediately the next day, all of the uh, surrounding Arab armies attack. They repel them. They establish their state. Jerusalem is divided. So, following Israel's war for independence, a war fought with Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, and the Arab League. A lot of people forget about that, um, which included even Saudi Arabia. Um, a couple of other countries, um, an e- uneasy armistice was agreed upon, uh, but it was rarely honored. Uh, this was the time of what was called the uh, Israel's reprisal operations, um, or Peolot uh, HaTagmul, um, uh, in Hebrew, that's what it is, um, Peolot HaTagmul. Um, these reprisal operations were raids that were carried out by um, the Israel Defense Forces or the IDF during the 1950s and the 1960s um, in response to constant attacks by well-armed uh, Arab militants uh, infiltrating Israel from Syria, Egypt, and Jordan with the intent to carry out often successfully um, attacks on Israeli civilians and IDF soldiers. But in most cases, uh, these clandestine attacks by Arab forces resulted in the vicious and intentional murders of Israeli civilians that often included women and small children. And if you look historically at these attacks, those were the soft targets that they most wanted to hit. Um, it's it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. So this is just post-independence. Israel is having to deal with this. Now, an event that led directly to the coming hostilities, as if that wasn't enough, um, with three signatories of the armistice uh, occurred in 1956 with what was called the Suez Crisis. And in this action, Israel invaded Egypt and held the Suez Canal in response to Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser's closing of the Straits of Tehran, uh, which cut off shipping to Israel's southern city um, of Elat in 1950. So this interference in uh, freedom of navigation for shipping by Egypt was an outright and blatant and distinct act of war. And as a result, uh, eventually it led to a UN peacekeeping mission, the United Nations Emergency Force, or UNEF, uh, being deployed 
along the uh, along the Israeli-Egyptian border. Now, that's one of the things that I found out. If you cut off a country's shipping, I didn't know this, um, and I was in the Navy, but um, if you cut off a nation's shipping, that qualifies as an act of war, and you're allowed to go to war with them, according to the UN's rules of engagement. Um, so in 1967, again, Tensions in the region rose as, again, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel, Abdel Nasser announced that the Straits of Tehran would be closed to Israeli vessels. Uh, this time, though, the closing of the Straits of Tehran led to the war that Nasser was craving. And in response to intentionally fake Soviet intelligence, uh, stating that the Israeli army was building itself up along the Syrian border, um, and it was given to Egypt because the Soviets knew of the president's desire, outright desire, to destroy Israel and the Jews. Um, Nasser mobilized the Egyptian military and ejected the UN force in the Sinai. The that um, what was it? That United Nations Emergency Force. He just he ejected them. Um, and it should be noted that they were not forced to leave. Um, Nasser said to leave through a commander who gave the, their commander a letter, and they packed up and left. And I'm not going to tell you who was in charge of the forces um, because they have a history of being a strong fighting force, so I don't know what happened, um, but they left. And they just... Uh, Pretty much said, you guys want to go to war, go to war. So hold on just one sec. I'm going to have a sip of coffee. Peter and Jay Hats, this cup is for you, as always. They're my Patreon uh, supporters, so thank you again. Hold on just one sec. Mm-mm-mm. Jacob's coffee straight from Israel. All right, it's Polish coffee, but it's the coffee that you get in Israel. So it's awesome. So where were we? This group, uh, this UN force just said, Nasser said to leave and they just said, okay, we're out. Now with Nasser's continuing radio broadcasts predicting the destruction of Israel and the Jews by Egypt and its combined armies, all the other Arab armies, declaring that the the streets would run with Jewish blood. Um, before dawn, on June 5th, 1967, Israel launched a preemptive airstrike against the Egyptian Air Force, destroying the vast majority of their Soviet-made fighters and bombers as they sat unsuspecting on the tarmac. This was, of course, the first salvo in what would become known as the Six-Day War. In this strike, nearly the entire Egyptian Air Force was destroyed um, with few Israeli casualties uh, or losses. And this gave Israel um, an advantage in air superiority uh, against the Egyptians on that front. So in coordination with this air raid on Egypt's air force, uh, Israeli forces launched a ground offensive into the Egyptian-occupied Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula, both of the, uh, simultaneously, uh, which again caught Egyptian forces by surprise almost immediately 
after i mean there were some actions between egyptian forces and the israeli forces but almost immediately uh president nasser ordered an evacuation of the sinai peninsula and this tactical mistake allowed israeli forces to pursue and inflict heavy casualties on the retreating egyptian forces it also allowed israel to conquer and hold the entire sinai peninsula by the end of the war um amazing absolutely amazing now a week before the attack Jordan, and this is important, you're going to understand why Jordan's such an important player in this narrative that I'm giving you. Um, now, a week before this attack, Jordan had entered into a defensive pact with Egypt that in the event of a war, had Jordan, uh, it, it had Jordan not taking any offensive role whatsoever, uh, but it would, Jordan promised to attempt to uh, tie down Israeli forces in order to prevent them from making any territorial gains. So if Egypt went to war, Jordan would bog them down with fire, uh, you know, artillery fire, small arms fire, ground action, all of that. Not offensively. Well, it is offensive um, in, in when you're from a military perspective, but they framed it as not being offensive. Um, so, that was the deal. Jordan had to, you know, had to be a part of this. Um, and what's interesting is Israel reached out to, um, who was it, King Hussein of Jordan and said, if you don't do anything, we won't do anything. Um, but I don't know if Israel knew that they had this pact with Egypt. And almost an hour after the initial Israeli air attack, the Egyptian commander of the Jordanian uh, military. So their, uh, Jordanian military was being led by Egyptian officers. Uh, he received orders from Cairo to mount attacks against Israel. And in an attempt to lessen, uh, Nasser's hurt pride, Egyptian military and state propaganda told over the radio of the defeat of the Israeli Air Force by the Egyptians, which was absolutely not true. Uh, this, of course, led to the Jordanians uh, being incorrectly told that Egypt had repelled the air raids. So it's just, it's pretty deplorable what the Egyptians did on so many fronts during this war. But then they also sent in uh, the Jordanians as cannon fodder just for their territorial and, and what bloodthirsty pretty much ambitions now at his disposal king hussein of jordan had not only jordanian troops but also a force of iraqi commandos to assist him in the defense of jerusalem <clears throat> in the defense of jerusalem and what had become known at that time as the west bank now jerusalem though was the place where jordan and israel would fight their main battles of the six-day war and whoever won would control the holiest city in the world. So that's why I say, um, you know, the the setup of Jordan is important to the not I guess not the narrative, but the story of the Six Day War because Jordan was kind of duped into it. I actually feel kind of bad for Jordanian forces. I know I'm going to get some pushback, um, but. You know, as a military person, as someone who has been in the military, um, I, 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 
I feel like that's that's one of the lowest things a commander can do. So there you go. Um, now for Israel, the objective was to capture East Jerusalem from the Jordanians. Um, and the purpose for this tactical goal was to reinstate access to the Western Wall and other Jewish holy sites in the old city um, and to restore the damage that the Jordanian authorities had inflicted on both the destroyed Jewish institutions, the synagogues, and other Jewish buildings, and to restore the crumbling Jewish quarter of the old city. Now, I don't know if you watched or listened to the last episode, but there was a plan by the Jordanian authorities, actually right, I think it was in 1967, at the beginning of the year, they had planned on demolishing the Jewish quarter and turning it into a park. Um, they had turned synagogues into stables and latrines. They uh, had destroyed something like 30,000 graves. I think that number's right. In... Uh, on the Mount of Olives, Jewish graves, and used the stones in building, uh, used them in latrines. Um, they they actually made a point of, of mentioning that in the research that I did. Just anything that they could do to really defile and remove the Jewishness from Jerusalem. So getting back in there, and they had denied any Jewish access to the Western Wall. Um, and that just, even for the secular Jews, that was, this, this is our history. You you can't do this to us. So they, you know, Israel took a massive affront to it. Did they um, do things that were bad in response? Um, yes, they did. They did them through omission. And I guess there was uh, a large Muslim uh, cemetery that was demolished by the locals uh, in Jerusalem. And the Israeli government never did anything to prevent that. I'm happy to say that the Israeli government now puts a prime on ensuring that all holy sites <clears throat> are, are protected, but they didn't do this um, at the time. I have an understanding of why, um, and I am compassionate towards that reason, but still that doesn't make an excuse for it. So there. Um, now, uh, let me take another sip of coffee real quick. Hold on just one sec. Mm. All right. So now the main, this main battle, okay, between Jordanian forces and Israeli forces took place in Jerusalem. And the Jordanians fought uh, from their bunkers and strongholds that were built during the 20 years after the independence war. Um, and had to, and and all of these bunkers had to be dislodged by the Israelis. Now, of these actions, the Battle of Ammunition Hill was one of the fiercest battles of the war. <clears throat> Ammunition Hill, or Givat Ha Tamoshet, which is the Hebrew name, uh, was a fortified Jordanian military post in the northern part of Jordanian-controlled East Jerusalem on the western slope of Mount Scopus. That's where Hebrew University is. Um, now, prior to the attack, General Uzi Narkis and the Jerusalem command of the IDF decided that due to its proximity to civilian populations, an aerial attack on the hill was too risky. Um, aerial bombing wasn't as precise, so they were concerned that civilians would be killed. Instead, Narkis ordered a focused barrage of artillery fire uh, be brought onto the fort, 
that would be quickly followed uh, by a ground attack using a heavily supported and reinforced um, company of paratroopers. So we have some of the best of the best in the IDF going up to uh, to dislodge Jordanian forces from Ammunition Hill, which was, I think it was what? Yeah, it was west, uh, is west of um, Mount Scopus, on the western slope of Mount Scopus. Now, after the artillery barrage, the first step in securing the hill was to assault the police academy that lie that laid to its uh, to its east. Now, at first, <clears throat> military intelligence, IDF intelligence, stated that the hill was held by a single platoon of approximately fifty Jordanian soldiers, um, or approximately one third of the size of Israel's attacking force. Now, this turned out to be incorrect, though, and when the ground assault began, um, Israeli forces found the police academy empty. There was no one there. Uh, what had happened was the Jordanian troops who were holding the police academy retreated to the bunker system uh, that wound throughout Ammunition Hill to take shelter from this artillery barrage. Um, and that's that's a normal tactic. You know, you retreat in the face of artillery fire. It's devastating. Now, this now meant, though, that the force defending the hill was now enlarged and equal to the size of the Israeli assault force, thus making any attempt at taking Ammunition Hill incredibly more dangerous for Israel. What a lot of you don't understand is, let's take a machine gun, okay? In order to uh, attack one machine gun emplacement that only has three guys, it takes a company size element. That's 150 people. So that means 150 people could potentially die taking one machine gun position. This ammunition hill was littered with bunkers and tunnels, and they had even, even the attrition rate was incredibly high. Um, so it was, I'm, for all intents and purposes, Ammunition Hill was a suicide mission. I am shocked and so wowed by Israeli forces that they would even continue the fight. So despite this setback at 2.30 a.m. on June the 6th, 1967, fighting began at the police academy and at Ammunition Hill. The task of capturing the hill was given to the Israeli third company of the 66th battalion of the 55th paratroopers brigade. And during the battle, a force of the second company joined in on the fighting. Remember I said the, uh, they, they were reinforced companies. So they were bringing in other help. They were bringing in help in order manpower in order to take this hill. Now by 6 30 AM, four hours later, the battle ended, although Israeli troops were forced to remain in the trenches due to snipers firing on them from Givat Hamivtar until the Harel Brigade overran that outpost um, in the afternoon. 36 Israeli soldiers and 71 Jordanians were killed in the fighting. Wow. That place was was a meat grinder. Um, now, 10 of the soldiers who fought in the battle were given citations by the Israeli chief of general staff. 
The commander of the paratroopers brigade was Mordecai Gurr. The commander of the 66th battalion was Yossi Yaffe. And Ammunition Hill is now an Israeli memorial site, as it should be. It is a place. It is the Normandy Beach of Israel. It is, wow. Um, the fighting. Just, uh, wow. But it goes on. So, following the fighting with the Jordanians at Ammunition Hill, Israeli troops then seized Bethlehem on June 7th and engaged in urban warfare in Jerusalem with the aim of reaching the old city of Jerusalem. Now, their first major objective was Mendelbaum Gate, um, and but it was defended by a camouflaged firing nest or machine gun nest. Remember what I was just telling you? Whoo, 150, a company-sized element that defended every Israeli attempt for it to be taken. Um, but an Israeli tank finally neutralized um, the... Uh, an Israeli tank finally neutralized the enemy position. The gate was then successfully breached. The next, the next objective captured, or objectives captured, were the Damascus Gate and the Rockefeller Museum. And finally, after engaging in hand-to-hand -hand fighting with the Jordanians, Israeli troops broke through into the old city. An order by the Israeli High Command to refrain from armor units being used in the capture of the old city resulted in heavier casualties for Israel. Think about that for a minute. No armor support. Hand-to-hand -hand fighting. But this was done out of a concern that Jerusalem's holy places could become a casualty of the fighting and that they could potentially be destroyed. Wow. Wow. Mind-blowing. Now, the Israelis eventually took the old city on the 7th of June, 1967, with Israeli General Moshe Dayan touring the old city before a throng of international press. You can see the film to this day on YouTube. The Jewish state of Israel cont controlled the entirety of Jerusalem, and Jews could once again pray at the Western Wall for the first time in 19 years. Upon its capture, General Moshe Dayan, Israel's Minister of Defense, was quoted as saying, are you ready for this? This morning, the Israeli Defense Forces liberated Jerusalem. We have united Jerusalem, the divided capital of Israel. We have returned to the holiest of our holy places, never to part from it again. To our Arab neighbors, we extend also at this hour and with added emphasis at this hour, our hand in peace. And to our Christian and Muslim fellow citizens, we solemnly promise full religious freedom and rights. We did not come to Jerusalem for the sake of other people's holy places and not to interfere with the inheritance uh, with the uh, adherence of other faiths but in order to safeguard its entirety and to live there together with others in unity that is so badass and so beautiful and fully and truly and with the greatest honor 
encapsulates the Israeli fighting soldier and the spirit of Israel. I am blown away by that. I, wow. Now, Egypt and Jordan eventually agreed to a ceasefire on June 8th, and Syria agreed on June 9th, uh, but signed a ceasefire with Israel on June 11th. The result of this war is that Israel crippled in its entirety the forces of the Egyptian, Syrian, and Jordanian militaries with enemy troop casualties numbering over 20,000 while losing fewer than 1,000 of its own forces. The success of Israel in the Six-Day War was the result of a well-prepared and well-implemented combat strategy combined with the Arab forces, poor civilian and military leadership, so their government and their military leadership. By the end of the war, Israel had seized the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, from Jordan, and the Gaza Strip, as well as the entire Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. And I put this apart and made this a part of the history and had it be its own specific episode um, when speaking about the history of Jerusalem because it is such a inter an integral part of not just Israeli identity, but Jewish identity. And around the world, um, the... <laughs> So uh, we, we say at Pesach next year, Jerusalem, and it meant something to Jews around the world in the United States, in Europe, uh, throughout the world, that next year, Jerusalem could actually mean something and, and was real and tangible. Um, and the mood that uh, the might of the Maccabees had returned to Israel. Um, sure, we won the independence war, but but to, to continue that, um, that of course, uh, was dented a little bit a couple of years later during the Yom Kippur war. And I think it was 1973. Um, but again, we were able to overcome that and push through and defend the borders again. Um, but yeah, so it is such an important part of Jerusalem's history that it needed its own uh, its own entire episode for me to explain what it was, what happened, the events that occurred uh, leading up to it. And uh, yeah, so, all right. Hey, um, listen, this is not the end of the Jerusalem story. We actually have episode four. That's going to be a transition. And, and so episode four is going to be Jerusalem, the modern city. So not, no, it'll be episode, honestly, it's episode 100. This is episode 99. Our 100th episode is going to be the modern uh, Jerusalem part four, the modern city. And we're changing format a little bit. I've got Neely Kane who lives in Jerusalem. Um, she is an amazing, amazing uh, person. She helps me produce this show. Um, she's a friend of mine from when I went to Ulpan at Ben Gurion University. Her family's from Jerusalem, and she's going to tell us about the modern city. So I'm really excited about this. Um, stay tuned for it. Um, it may take a little longer than a week. 
uh, because it's a new format and I'm going to have to edit it, you know, and, and just play with it and make sure it's all squared away. But um, yeah, so uh, that's coming. All right, listen, if you like this episode, hit the like button, the subscribe button and the notification bell. Um, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and your family. They'd love it. It's a lot of fun and it's a lot of fun for me to bring to you. Um, if you want to take us with you, you can find us on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Um, and also, as usual, this episode is brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcard Set. Uh, sets, um, they are available on Amazon uh, for Kindle. And they are the best way to learn Hebrew, the best way to brush up on Hebrew. And you can download the app. You don't need a Kindle uh, to to uh, to use them. You can download the app for Android, for uh, iPhone, iPad, PC, and Mac. And the downloads in the description below. And also available on Amazon for Kindle is my children's book, Who Is a Jew, uh, illustrated by Dana Korokova. And it is a bedtime story uh, for your kids to tell them how awesome it is to be Jewish. So download that as well and check it out. Um, all right, that's it. Yalla bye. Let's <laughs> go.